going to turn this corner. It's the first time he actually sees that finish line. Amazing scenes down here on the finish line. The crowd is going off. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, your 2022 Dartev Challenge Roth champion, Magnus Didlov. He is overwhelmed. Magnus, would you have believed that if someone had told you this morning you're going to win this race? No, definitely not. I'm. Uh, if uh, the things I'm saying now doesn't make sense, I'm just out of words. I can't believe what just happened. Everything just went uh, according to the plan, and it's very rare that it does that. So I'm so grateful for a fantastic event with spectators all over the place. It was like you just get carried all the way through. Carried all the way through. Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and I have just finished an absolutely delightful conversation with the young Danish professional triathlete, Magnus Ditlev, fresh off winning the Challenge Roth Triathlon. Arguably the world's greatest long distance race outside of Kona Ironman. The crowds are enormous. 250,000 people line the course. In this episode, Magnus goes into detail of the race, the swim, bike, run, how he felt going into it, his preparation and everything else, what it was like to have Jan Fredino, arguably the greatest of all time triathlete, uh, withdraw three to four kilometers into the run leg and how that affected his sort of mindset. And then that basically he had to do 38 kilometers now kind of on his own and just focused on that and the, the actual race that he was hoping for kind of disappeared really quickly. But uh, his maturity is really beyond that of a 24-year-old, the way he handles himself. There's so much in this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. A little bit of housekeeping before we go on. Please go check out Any Question. You can go there and ask many of the world's greatest experts questions, listen to their answers. There's some of the world's greatest triathletes on there, swimmers, cyclists, runners, strength coaches, uh, scholars and professors, some of the world's greatest health experts, nutritionalists. So go check it out. Some wonderful content there. You can go check it out, have an hour free, ask questions, listen to answers. I also just want to have a special shout out for those of you that have been just giving me such wonderful feedback. I truly appreciate it. Some of you are suggesting people that you want on the show. I'm trying to get through some of those. I have some episodes coming that I think you'll really appreciate and enjoy. And until the next one, everybody, remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today, I'm joined by an exceptional man who is just spearheading the next generation of superstar triathletes. Although only in the sport for a few years, he's established himself as one of the all-time Uber bikers and has combined that with a swim and run legs that are amongst the very best in the world. And he's fresh off the back of winning arguably the most prestigious long-distance event outside of Kona Ironman, the Challenge Roth Triathlon in Germany. And in the process, he set a new bike course record and won by over nine minutes. This performance has shot him up the professional triathlon rankings to number four in the world. It's an enormous honor and privilege to just have him join me only a few days after his epic performance in Roth. So welcome and thanks for joining me on the Greg Bennett Show. Magnus Ditlev, how are you, mate? Ah, thank you so much. Thanks for, uh, for having me, Greg. It was a really cool introduction. And yeah, I remember actually the first time I heard your show was... A couple of years ago when I was on a, it was the first time I was on a training camp 
all by myself and the weather wasn't exactly ideal. But then I started on some of the longer bike rides listening to your show and it was as if the time just flew by. So hopefully I'll be able to <laughs> inspire some other people now to yeah, get easier through one of their training sessions. Oh, thanks, mate. That means the world to me that it had a little bit of an impact because I'm a bit of a fan of yours and um, and I've been watching, you know, for the last couple of years. And I, I see you not only as a somebody that I is, is doing championship performances right now, but is going to continue to do wonderful performances into the future. But the big takeaway I had, I think, from the one or two times where we met at, at you know, Daytona or Miami was just... I see you as a really champion person. Um, you're a good person and I've enjoyed our conversations. And for me, I just, it's a real thrill to see you just ignite and become, you know, now top four in the world on the world rankings in such a short space of time. I mean, it looks short. We can go into that. You might <laughs> say, hey, Greg, it's not short. I've been working on But from looking at the, the races that you've done over these last three to four years. So it really is fantastic. And I want to just take this moment to really just congratulate you on that winning performance in Roth. Um, I do want to go into more detail later in the show, but massive congrats, mate. Um, Ah, How's how's this week been? You know, what's the reaction been with family and your peers and sponsors? How's it, how's it all been? Yeah, to be honest, I think it hasn't really like completely (laughs) sunken in yet, but it's starting to, yeah, you know, it was just, Uh, Already from arriving in Roth, like one week before, Mm. I realized how big this event was. I have always seen on TV and heard really good stuff about Challenge Roth, but it was only when I really like entered my foot in the in the city that I started to realize how actually how massive the event is. Not just Mm. it's not just a race; it's like the whole community is backing up the event. And yeah, during the race, race they say it's the biggest one day uh, event sporting event in the world with more than 200,000 uh, <laughs> spectators out on the course and then after the race I was like okay now things can't get much bigger but it seems that it just <laughs> it's just continuing all the time so there's been a lot of messages and I haven't got the chance to reply to a lot of them but I'm trying to respond to everyone but it's just so overwhelming for me yeah I just it's one of those things that you know you're a young man with a a bright future obviously ahead and you've just you've just crushed that and if I have any feedback it's like just really just enjoy it for that moment and really let it sink in I think there's always a temptation as a champion athlete you are to go right what's next you know what's (laughs) next it's like just try and enjoy this one um you know it's uh it's very very special and uh I've noticed I went through your Instagram um earlier and I was so amazed at all of your peers all of the other professional (laughs) triathletes in the world it was like a list of who's who were commenting and, and just saying congrats. Does that blow you away a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Also, like, I feel like I have a lot of fans outside the sport, mm. but also when, like, the colleagues are starting and 
some of the biggest names are starting to notice what I'm doing. It's yeah, <laughs> I have to pinch myself in the arm sometimes <laughs> to realize that like this is not actually a dream, but it's <laughs> a reality. Oh, I love it. And so, what have you been doing this week? You know, we're recording on a Friday morning. Well, Friday morning for me, Friday afternoon for you. Have you been had a chance to do a bit of recovery, or is it just take a week completely off? How's that been? Uh, well, so one of the things, as I said earlier, it seems that it just continues to grow. And <laughs> I was, uh, I had to rebook my flights because I didn't notice there would be events after the race. Also, that I had to <laughs> to be. So there were a lot of uh, like ceremonies afterwards in Roth and. Uh, small volunteer parties and I had to give a speech and all sort of things I've never tried, tried before <laughs> in my life. So that was really... What was more nerve-wracking, the start of the yeah, race or doing a speech? <laughs> that was definitely the speech. <laughs> no, but it was really good. Yeah, and then I, I, I flew home to Denmark uh, uh, Wednesday. So yeah. I'm just starting to get into like a more normal rhythm again, but still there's a lot of stuff I have to reply to and <laughs> mm, I get it. Take your time and try and let her join in, but that's that's awesome. I'm not gonna lie, I was kinda thrilled to see you riding a Scott bike, yeah, Scott across your chest. Um, <laughs> and we have a little side story there that's kind of kind of funny. And I don't know if it's directly related to this, but it was I remember being on the back of the motorbike at Challenge, uh, or was it Clash Daytona? Yeah, in Daytona, yeah. And, um, and I was on the motorbike, on the back of the motorbike, right, right next to you, and the cameras were on you, and, and, and you were powering around the course as you do it, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour, <laughs> 50K an hour plus, and, uh, and Belinda Granger's in my ear saying, and, you know, this young man doesn't have a bike sponsor, and how can that happen, you know? And, and yeah. as it would have happened, I just been having conversations with my good friend Adrian Zahn from Scott Bikes and he'd been saying, Greg, you know, can you recommend me some athletes? And <laughs> that, that couple of weeks before. And it was Belinda was in my ear saying, you know, Magnus doesn't. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm in the commentary saying, I might have an idea. I might have an idea, Belinda. I think, I believe there's a company that wants it. And then Adrian texts me while I'm on the back of the bike riding next to you at 55K an hour are you talking about Scott, <laughs> Greg? Because we're interested. And, and so, and then you and I yeah. quickly spoke after the race. And uh, did, is that how, did it then happen from that? Or what was that process like of finally getting uh, Scott? Yeah, I think <laughs> it's never that easy. To, but <laughs> no, it's exactly sometimes. Yeah. But uh, maybe it, it definitely helped, I think. So, but it has been like a uh, real difficult to, because of the pandemic to mm. get a bike sponsor and also I didn't want to just uh, bring along uh, like I'm quite uh, picky about my equipment so I didn't just want to say no to someone I couldn't trust I believe so it, it took some time but now we're finally <laughs> I have a really good deal with Scott and uh, it's a dream uh, well, for it's, me it's a dream for them, them. mate yeah. it's <laughs> a dream for them to see you win uh, you know, challenge rod is with a 401 bike split, a new course, rec you know, a new bike course record. Your actual overtime, I think I read, was nine seconds shy of Jan Fredino's overall course record. Now, look, I don't think course records mean that much in the world of triathlon conditions and distances yeah, and everything. Exactly. A bit yeah. But my point is in saying all that, it was one of the world's outstanding performances. And I know for one that Scott must be feeling very good about themselves um, right now. So it, it's, it's great for them. It's great for you. It's a great partnership. But, mate, what I want to do now is um, 
I want to dissect 2022 and then we'll go further yeah. back than that later. But I want to just look at this year. Mate, it started off a little rocky. Uh, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> if we go to Ch- uh, Clash uh, Miami and you're actually having a pretty solid race. Your swim was okay, but the bike, mm. as typical, was a weapon. And I think you were just shy off Sam Long for the fastest bike split. And you were just behind Sam, you know, going into the run. Tell me what happened next. A lot of people actually believe I was uh, having difficulties with the heat. But uh, the truth is that uh, the day before the race, I started feeling a little bit weird and started <laughs> having some stomach problems. Mm. So I think we, I might have gotten some food poisoning or something like that. So at the end of like starting halfway through the run, I really had to go <laughs> to the toilet. And that's probably the worst thing that can happen on, uh, <laughs> on like when you're running. And I thought it might just be like one time in and out and then start running. But then one kilometer later, I had to go again. And uh, after three times, I think I had, I needed to call it a day. And <laughs> so no. that was definitely not the way I had hoped to start my 2022 season. No. Yeah, I think everybody was saying the heat, the heat, only because there were so many other athletes that, you know, yeah. Emma Plant Brown collapsed. Um, and that was really scary there for a moment. And it, it, the conditions were tough in terms of the very uh, strong heat especially first race of the year you know it's like you, you haven't even yeah. adapted at all um, it's like they're definitely the most uh, challenging weather conditions i've raced in yeah so yeah no it was brutal being a, an announcer on the back of the motorbike <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine <laughs> with the helmet on and stuff yeah, like no, that I'm so. totally kidding i'm totally kidding i at least had the chance to cool off but mate but then you you know roll forward iron man texas an outstanding performance, honestly, you know, with a, with a 52 minute uh, swim and then a, you know, a solid bike, a four hour 20. Um, but then the, the 240 marathon, yeah. you know, with a 758 total, uh, you know, that, that day, you know, tell me about the finish in a moment, but because uh, <laughs> I did have Ben Hoffman on the show right after, well, a few weeks ago now, and he, he really did say, sing your praises. Um, but take me through that race. Yeah, so it was my first full distance uh, event, and I really liked the process of going into a new distance. I really liked that. It was something I got a lot of motivation from, and I felt like I could use some of the, I'm quite a systematic and scientific, uh, mm. like minded guy. So I felt I could use some of that with, for instance, he, uh, Texas is quite a hot and humid place. So we did a lot of heat acclimatization and a lot of strategies for cooling down. And we had the time to dig in a lot to like nutrition and, my sweat rates and all sorts of things. So I was quite confident actually, even though it was my f- first full distance that I would be able to perform perform quite well. Mm. Uh, and so I didn't have the swim that I had hoped for. I was, I think, four and a half minutes after Richard Varga out of the water. And then onto the bike, I it took some time actually before I started gaining, which worried me a little bit. But then once I started catching time on the other guys, I, it was like, uh, I was really riding faster than anybody else. And mm. I think I took the lead at around 100, between 100 and 120 kilometers into the bike and quite quickly gapped. Uh, there was a front of two people riding together and got a gap to them. And 
was riding really strong the last hour also, but then at 175 kilometers into the bike, unfortunately, I hit something in the from the tarmac that made a huge side cut in the in my mm. tire. So I had a puncture in my front tire, and I could see straight away that it was like the the cut in the tire was so big that if I had just uh, replaced the tube, mm. then the tube would just pop straight out of the tire and puncture again 100 meters later. So I was, I was talking to <clears throat> the lead motorbikes and asking if there was some kind of neutral service out on the course. And he said that there, there was a, <laughs> a neutral vehicle somewhere but he didn't <laughs> he didn't know where it was no. so i just had to and he called the the vehicle and he said it was some some kilometers like uh, behind so i was just standing in the side of the road for nine minutes on the bike watching three people i think right through mm-hmm. and uh it just so happened that when i had fixed my <laughs> I, I got a new tire and rode to t2 and then the first thing I see when I look behind is the Ben Hoffman. So, uh, and uh, he was probably the only guy that I had thought beforehand, it's not a good idea to go into a run uh, battle with him. <laughs> so <laughs> that scared me a little bit. <laughs> but I tell you what, even when Ben came on the show, I mean, he, he sung your praises first and foremost. And what I mean by that, he was very aware that, you'd spent a long, long time on the side of the road. And I think there was not only the physical to still perform, but the mental strength and fortitude to keep yourself in the game. You know, it, it, we have a saying in Australia that you spit the dummy or you you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. And, and it's kind of like you, you kept it together. Um, and I can even tell by just talking to you, you, you you're fairly calm and calculative. And, mm. and I think that's a huge you know, talent to have as a professional athlete to manage those emotions under duress. But then you've gone about and you've, you know, you've pegged one of the greatest runners the sport's ever seen in the world of Ironman and one of the greatest Ironman athletes, not just one of the greatest (laughs) runners. And uh, what was that? I mean, your first Ironman, you're running side by side with Ben Hoffman. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I was extremely worried uh, about the, like, because it was completely unknown territory. And I was running, it felt incredibly good. So I was running a little bit faster than we had planned beforehand for the first 21 kilometers. And Ben was just putting in time on me. I think he was, after 21 kilometer, he was maybe half a minute in front of me. And I had just did the the 21K in 1.18, which Mm. is 2.36 uh, marathon pace. So Mm. I was thinking, what the hell is going on here? (laughs) But then uh, I managed to stay, like not completely, because I was still feeling fairly good at the halfway point. So I was thinking maybe I should just try to close the gap real quick. But then I was just running, like sticking to my pace. And suddenly my coach was giving me splits that I was actually taking back a little time and I could see him getting close and closer uh, but it was not like it was very slowly he was coming back to me so but then at 32 kilometers into the marathon I finally caught him but at that point I was uh, yeah 
<laughs> I was on the limit, so I decided <laughs> not to just uh, like to attack him straight away, but to stay a little bit behind, get some nutrition in, try to cool down, and and then I started. Actually, it was it took like maybe only a few minutes before I. When I caught him at first, I was extremely tired and really th- feeling it. But after a few minutes, I was actually feeling quite recovered again. So we had, I think we had been running together for 3K or something like that. So I, I put in a huge surge, which he covered, and then he uh, attacked me again. And I covered him, and I attacked him again, and he, <laughs> and then he attacked me. And after those four attacks, I think it was pretty clear for the both of us that yeah. we would go, <laughs> we were about to completely <laughs> destroy each other. <laughs> and it was like we were maybe going from running 3.45 pace to accelerating down to 3.20 pace in those attacks. So it was mm. some really big surges. And I think we both figured that we wouldn't be able to drop each other like that. So the last part was basically cruising the both of us, I think. My coach, the last thing he told me was be sure to to be the first man in the last corner because Mm. we knew it was extremely technical. Mm. But I hadn't, like the the full uh, finish line area wasn't set up. When I was, I did the course recon. Mm-hmm. So I, but we still knew it would be like there were some turns, and then 400 meters before uh, finish line, I think I start sprinting, sprinting because I see there is a turn, and my coach has said, "Be sure to be the first man in the last corner," and I think that's the last corner, and I, <laughs> oh, I'm, no. I'm the first man in that corner, and then I see this little downhill yeah. and then 180 degree turn and Ben just comes flying like out of, in a complete, uh, yeah, that was, I couldn't respond. Uh, my legs were just gone at that time. So. Oh, mate, it, it, it's a sprint at the end of an IMM with after all of those surges, with after having to cover the gap, with after continuing the race after having a puncture where you've been on the side of the road. It's like, it's yeah, like yeah. so many bits. It's like, oh, and it was interesting when, when I was chatting with Ben on the show and, uh, and I think it was you were staying that 30 seconds behind for so long that I think finally Kelsey, Ben's wife, you know, gave him the split and he's like, what? He's like, what? And I think he's yeah. kind of like, well, I might as well run with him. This is silly, you know. And, and so there was almost a little bit of you pushing to get to him and him just slowing down a fraction for you to get on. And, and then you tried yeah. to beat each other up a little bit for, you know, for quite a few K there. I, I, for me, I just love racing like that and, and the battle. Um, but mate, let, let, let's yeah. move on because you've, you've run a 240 marathon there, 240.56 um, for your inaugural debut Ironman. Insane, unbelievable in hot, humid conditions in Texas. No longer can we just say he's an Uber biker. Do you know what I mean? It's like you run a 240, <laughs> you're putting yourself in, in, in rare field there. And so then next race, Roth, right? I mean, that was your, that was your target mm. after Texas. What was that preparation like? Yeah, it was actually, I hadn't planned it. Like when I finished Texas, I didn't know I was going to do Roth, but it was just a, a thought that entered my head when I saw that Patrick would be there, Sam would be there, and I knew some rumors that Jan was coming. And I really, as you say, you like racing, and it's the same for me. I just love going. Like the experience I had with Ben Hoffman there was, it's basically the the coolest thing that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Like when we were and like we were running side by side, and no one was saying 
anything I do was just so tense. So it was, I was really looking forward to, to racing Roth, but it was also, uh, the period between Texas and Roth was probably the most stressful, stressful in my whole life. We had, it was maybe a little bit silly, but, uh, on the plane back to Denmark, my coach and I sort of made a list because we were <laughs> maybe starting to get a little bit uh, cocky or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we made a list about like what sort of things needs to be in order and has to be checked before I'm able to win Kona. Mm -hmm. Like what should I, what, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that list went just straight when I entered uh, Copenhagen, I started working on all those things uh, together mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, almost. <laughs> so I have had so many uh, projects going on with uh, aerodynamic testing and uh, I've been sleeping in an altitude tent for the first time uh, up to leading into Ross. So we had a lot of uh, stuff going on that we wanted to try out like for an Ironman before Kona so that we when Kona is getting closer, we don't have to focus on those things. Mm -hmm. So it was really a stressful period. But when I then uh, went on the plane to Roth and started getting like straight from when I got to the city of Roth, it was more, I started feeling better and the table was going nicely and everything was more <laughs> relaxed. So it was really good that I had a week uh, in Germany to, to relax. Nice. And then so... Roth becomes part of your, you know, your plan here. And I want to, I do want to talk to you about your altitude and aerodynamics in a moment, but I want to stay focused mm. on Roth for the moment. You're getting it. What was your mindset as you approached? Was there a inner belief uh, and confidence going into that race or was it just yeah, go and have fun? I think, uh, I think my, I've always been, I'm not the kind of guy that says, uh, like loudly and mm -hmm. very uh, loud spoken that I want to win, but I have quite a big belief in myself, especially when I know like we are doing a lot of testing and I knew my numbers were extremely good. So I, when I have something to back it up and I, I knew from Texas that I would be able to run a 240 and this time I was feeling even like the training numbers were better. So I'm quite good at believing in myself. I just don't say it like really loud and outspoken. But so I, I think going into Roth, I knew that I would be able to fight for the win, but I also knew that it would be extremely difficult. Like I didn't expect, you don't expect to win in such a field. But for me, when I and showed the line, I knew if I execute to the best of my ability in the swim, bike and run, then I will be in the contention. Mm. And that when you th when you talk about execution and, and what was the process? What 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 were, you, what were your kind of little goals within the race that you wanted to tick? I knew the swim would be crucial for me uh, if I was four and a half minutes after Jan out of the water, like I was in Texas. Then I knew it would be very difficult. Mm. And I've always we've always from the data we have from training and swimming indoor, my swim level is actually I would say uh, really good. I just haven't been able to, I think it comes down to experience. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience in open water mm -hmm. mass starts. So I haven't been able to convert the swim level from pool swimming into open water yet. So it has always, always when I tow the line in a swim, I'm basically hoping this time I hope to be able to show some of the potential I have in the pool. 
and I believe I had uh, here in Roth, it's uh, like a, uh, there's basically one kilometer straight before you hit the first uh, buoy, which is good for me. So I can, it doesn't, sometimes when there is a buoy after maybe two or 300 meters, when you have the level I have, it's more of a lottery or something <laughs> like it's not a lottery but it's more chaotic where you end up and then you end up somewhere and it's really difficult for me to like move up but this time I really had the time to get into my own rhythm and and like build up from there so I actually just after three or four hundred meters I was on the feet of some I could see the lead kayak the whole way which was a good sign so I was really happy with that and then I just stayed on the same feet the whole way. So it was quite a, that's the funny thing about swimming is that when you actually hit the pack you want to be in, then it is extremely easy to, to, to be there. But when you are uh, fighting for yourself, then you are just uh, oh, <laughs> spending yeah. so much more energy. <laughs> that, that, that first 50, the first 100, the first 200, the little ma markers are yeah. so critical, aren't they? Just for positioning. And then the rest of the race, you can sort itself out. But if you get on the wrong feet early or somebody that, yeah, you know, exactly. um, you know it's, it's frustrating. And what was impressive about your swim there is you were within two minutes of Jan Fudino out of yeah. the water with, with a 50-44 and right on the back of Patrick Langer and uh, people like Renato Colucci, who's, you know, former Olympian, Olympic swimmer, uh, Olympic triathlete. So it's like these guys were, it was a legit pack and, and you kept it mm. well within Jan Fredino's radar. And if I look back, you know, someone like Sam Long had dropped off about five minutes behind you guys. So it was yeah. an impressive and swim. I, like, I mean, I swam with him in Miami, so that just shows how how big mm -hmm. the range is from my sp swimming at the moment. <laughs> that yeah. Sometimes when you end up the wrong place, you can have a swim that's not as good. But then if you hit have a good start, then mm. I'm able to stay at the right feet. But mate, then this bike, 40156. Um <laughs> Absolutely insane. What, what? Tell me, do you know what average speed that is? Have you figured that out? Yeah, that's around 44.6 or something like that. That includes getting your feet in and out of shoes and eating and doing everything yeah, else that you got to exactly. do. It's like yeah. actual bike speed. You're probably closer to 47, I bet, or 48. Yeah, is that a right? lot of the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which for, for miles, people, that's just shy of, a, it's around that 30 mile an hour mark which is off it's, it's it's really incredible mate for for the whole bike <laughs> you know so take me through that you rode up to to yarn um and slowly you sort of a couple of the guys started falling off the back of the pace that you guys were holding was it mostly you or was yarn contributing to that kind of pace another crucial part for me was when i jumped on the bike i had to overtake patrick and I didn't want to bring him to the front <laughs> because I knew once the front group was like established, then there was a possibility that we would end up riding together for some of the time. So I was very careful not to, like to, when I, when I overtook him, I was really putting in a big surge. Yeah. When you say also, big surge, give me some numbers. What does that mean? Yeah. I can tell you, I was thinking that my power meter was actually broken because <laughs> I, I was, couldn't believe the power I was pushing. So I think for the first 30 minutes or something like that, I have just above 400 uh, watts normalized power. Wow. And that's more than I would push in a 70.3. Yeah. So, and that was a big risk actually doing that because I had only done one Ironman before in, in Texas. <laughs> in Texas, it's like, uh, 
I had such a big uh, margin to the front that I just had to pace it extremely, mm. like even the whole way. And this time I started out putting in power that I wouldn't do in a 70.3. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> when I caught, uh, but then, then uh, Patrick, uh, yeah, he was uh, dropped. And I could see I was gaining time on Jan. And I caught him around 40 minutes into the bike or something. Uh, and then went straight to the front, actually uh, tried to, it was just when we hit a big hill and I really tried to put him under pressure on the hill, but he covered the attack I did. And I knew from there on that it would be very difficult to, to drop him. And I thought maybe I knew I had been riding really hard for the first 45 minutes and I figured it would be a bit of like a really big risk to, to continue pushing so I actually decided after my attack didn't work that, uh, okay, you need to save some energy and really get on top of the nutrition and the liquids. So I let some of the other guy, there was, uh, like Jan was riding with uh, Maurice Clavel and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Callen and Ronaldo Colucci were, uh, were riding with me when I bridged to Jan. So we were people, like a group of five people. Uh, so I'm... I just decided to sit in the group a little bit and maybe yeah, just let some time go and start getting <laughs> everything like more under control, more like normal Ironman pace. And then one by one, it was actually Jan pulling most of the time and uh, the other guys, uh, first uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo Colucci uh, was dropped and then F, like 20 kilometers later, Maurice Clavel was dropped on one of the climbs. And at the end, it was just uh, Jan and I riding together. And for me, beforehand, I knew it would maybe this would be like I had prepared for this scenario. Then I thought because I rode with Jan in Miami last year. Mm -hmm. So I knew and I wasn't able to get him there. And I knew he had been biking a lot since then because of his injury. So I knew it would be extremely difficult to get away from him. I knew I would be able to do uh, 240 again around there if everything went according to the plan. Uh, so I was fairly confident going into the, <laughs> the the marathon with him, but still, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's Jan Fredino. It's Jan Fredino. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, never know what he will... <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But I also looked on some of the statistics, like he has, I think he has done a sub 240 one or two times in his career. So... He is not, I knew he probably wouldn't do a 235, for instance, also because of his injury. So I was just, uh, the last part of the bike, I was really looking forward to a good battle with him. How does that feel that, you know, Jan's a good friend of mine and, and, and I don't like to see anybody injured. You know, it's never fun for an athlete. It's awful. Um, yeah. But then, you know, he did start the run and, and there was a little bit of, I think there's something happened in T2 with him, right? He, did he lose his bag or something? Yeah. So the thing is he put his socks on in T1. Yeah, right. Uh, but, but then in T2, he couldn't find his bag. Yeah. So I entered T2 first. But then because he has his socks on already, he just had to put his shoes on. So he was just uh, flying through the transition. Yeah, yeah. And then I had some time to make up. Yeah, right, right. That's right. But then you, you were just behind him for the first little bit of the run. Did you mm. get to run shoulder to shoulder with him or did he pull out before uh, you got a chance? Yeah, so he was maybe starting the run 10 or 15 seconds before me. And yeah. 
I could see from the way he was running that he was going very fast, but also he looked a little bit stiff and crammed up. Mm -hmm. The only thing I was looking at was his back. So I was just focusing completely on, (laughs) I think, on him. And I could see he was coming a little bit closer and a little bit closer. But then I think I got him within maybe five to 10 seconds, and then he had to to pull out at four kilometers into the run. Yeah. Oh, well, mate, it's it's one of those things. It's a part of winning a race is get, getting yourself to the start line physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, mm. 100%. Yeah, exactly. um, He's obviously gone out to, to test himself a little bit and see where things are and realize, hang on, things are going pretty well, but not well enough to and like do more damage. But now you're on your own, you're feeling pretty confident, uh, and belief system of a 240, were there any hiccups along the way? Or, I mean, you've run a 240 in 22 yeah. seconds. <laughs> so it might sound a little bit weird, but it was actually incredibly difficult shift in my head when he pulled out mm-hmm. because you are basically going from thinking you are about to enter an ed- epic battle with the greatest of all times and you have a real chance at him. And then suddenly everything is in your hands and it's all yours to lose so from the moment he pulled out it was you really have to find some other motivation it was a really big uh, mindset shift that has to happen in my head because there was Mm. i knew uh, that i would probably run faster than maurice and robert and we had maybe 12 or 13 minutes down to Patrick and even though he's an incredibly good runner I knew he wouldn't do a 220 for instance so <laughs> so it was more of a, like my task just became to make sure not to make any mistakes and be sure to like do the plan down to every detail and do it as good as you can and then make time <laughs> go by <laughs> like yeah. it's a long way when you have to run suddenly have to run 38 kilometers uh, alone <laughs> Yes, it is. But I love how you had the maturity of thought to uh, focus on the process and not on the outcome too early. You know, if you start dwelling on the, yeah, I've got the win, don't screw yes. it up. Immediately there's a negative there, you know, and the yeah. negative compounds. The more you start saying don't screw it up, the more likely you're going to screw it up. But it's like... Uh, if you you shouldn't can, definitely shouldn't be able, you shouldn't think that you're winning. Exactly. Then, uh, it's like yeah. just come back into yourself. What do I need to work on to have the kilometers tick over? And um, mm. and that that's great maturity that you've got that. Because um, you're 24, right? I mean, I think... 24, yeah, 24, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's outstanding. So when then did you allow yourself to say I've, I've got this was it at the finishing line or was it earlier yeah it's funny you know you probably know it yourself but when you're out there and you are pushed to the limit and you're uh, not your 100 percent uh, like in your brain is not functioning you like there were some turnaround points at the run course and for instance after 37 there is a turnaround where i take a lap on my bike my uh, running computer and see that I have 10 minutes on uh, Patrick. And even though I then do the math in my head, okay, it's five kilometers to go, 10 minutes. Uh, he has to run two minutes per kilometer quicker than me. I'm going 345 at the moment. See how he has to go one minute and 45 <laughs> uh, minutes per kilometer. Even though you do those thoughts, you still think, no, 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 it's uh, something will, uh, yeah, <laughs> something yeah, can yeah. go wrong. Yeah. So. 
but I think at that it was at that turnaround that I really said, okay, now yeah, now I'm just I just have to make it to the finish line and then enjoy. Yeah, and, and then that finish in Roth is is quite something, isn't it? The crowd is enormous, and uh, was it emotional yeah. for you at the end? Was it relief? Was it joy? What what was the, those first sort of feelings? Yeah, actually, I think. It's mostly afterwards I've had a lot of feelings because at the moment I couldn't believe what was going on, but definitely it was very emotional for me afterwards. I, uh, it, I had my father there. He hadn't been seeing me race in person for quite a long time. And my coach did the drive like from Denmark in the night because he was at a, he had to go to an important birthday party Saturday. So he basically drove the, they basically drove the whole night to just come and spectate for me. So I had a lot of people out on the course that I knew very well. And it was, yeah, just such a big moment for me. Oh, well, mate, again, congratulations. And, and uh, I appreciate you taking me through it. And there's nothing better than reliving a, an exceptional performance with somebody and just understanding the emotions and, and listening to some of the inner stories. So very, very cool. What, I, what I'd like to do now, and I, I know if you've listened to the podcast, you know I love to do this, is just yep. rewind the clock a little bit. Um, and being that you're so young, we don't have to rewind <laughs> too far, but I, I'm really curious as to your journey uh, into the sport of triathlon. On paper, when I look at the professional rankings and things, it, it really doesn't mm. indicate you've been in very long. And here you are all of a sudden on top of the world but tell me about the process for you finding the journey uh, the finding the passion for the world of triathlon yeah. so as you say i really haven't been in triathlon for <laughs> for very long i did i had to look it up beforehand here but i see i did my first triathlon in late 2015 so it's uh, basically seven years i'm not like coming in from a more traditional people often either have been swimming or biking or running uh, like on a very high level actually uh, when i was in high school no primary school i just played a lot of football <laughs> and badminton <laughs> but then from the like the in denmark it's very common that uh, in in between primary and high school uh, people often go abroad to see something else and do something else with their lives and pretty much everyone on my soccer and badminton team did that so i had no team anymore <laughs> and then i've always basically when i was playing soccer and badminton i was doing it almost as uh, dedicated as i am to triathlon now so i've always had a lot of energy and <laughs> looked into the details so i had a lot of time because i wasn't wasn't playing football or badminton anymore and i was i then started directly in uh, yeah you, i think in the united states it's called high school uh, mm -hmm. and was placed in a class with two elite runners and because I had so much energy left from not playing soccer and badminton, I had started running and biking a little bit just with my father actually for fun and to keep in shape if maybe some of the old teammates from the team would come back and there would be a team again. But yeah, then I just pretty much started running a little bit and, and biking and the two runners from my class, they saw that I was like a little bit active and invited me to come join their uh, athletic club. And so I started running with them and started biking a little bit more with my father. Uh, and then things just took on from there. I had been, like when I was uh, very young, I had been having some courses in swimming just 
basically just learning how to swim style. So I knew <laughs> I was able to swim. And then <laughs> because the Ironman Copenhagen uh, route, uh, it's uh, going directly through uh, my hometown. Mm. So I had been spectating uh, previous years uh, at that event and thought that the idea of combining swimming, biking and running looked pretty cool. So I decided to sign up for my first triathlon, with, which was a half distance in 2015. You just went straight to half. You didn't worry about starting Yeah, short. yeah I didn't know actually <laughs> there was something called a short course. So. <laughs> Mate, I, I, I think that's, that, that's a great example. I love the fact that it was like watching an Ironman is what sort of you know, <laughs> triggered the bug um, and that you're a kid with a lot of energy. There's been a few, I remember Sebastian Kinlay on the show said something similar. He had so much energy that his parents, <laughs> I think, found triathlon for him. Um, I don't know if you remember that episode where he talks about throwing the ping pong table in the air because he lost the game or whatever. And anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's basically, <laughs> I think, yeah, also Sam Long is maybe also an example of someone that comes into the sport very late who has hasn't been doing any mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. any of one of the three disciplines beforehand. So, so when did you realize then? I mean, you did your first one in 2015. Was there a point you were like, yeah, I've got some ability at this? Uh, well, I was actually rubbish. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, something inside me told me it was fun. Yeah. And two weeks later, I think I did another one. So, yeah. I just starting like it was things were just. Um, taking each other like uh, doing it was my own project i did like i was not training with a lot of other guys i had some mates especially from the running uh, like my the athletic club that i was training with but otherwise it was basically my own little thing Mm -hmm. and then i started going into like i'm a quite extreme person i think so I started training more and more and more and more. <laughs> and uh, there was, there came a point where I was basically, yeah, I was training, my, like doing my own program. So I think I was overtrained quite a bit. And then I was at an event where I did, I was, I think I was, at the time I was training more than I am now. Mm. And I was so bad. And then one of the, there is a, a triathlon club in Copenhagen the biggest uh, triathlon club in Copenhagen. He, uh, there is a, like the head coach from that club. He's also a former pro tri- triathlete himself. He was spectating at that event and he saw me and how weak I was. I basically, I had no muscle in my entire body. I was just so thin. And he said afterwards, look, you, what you're doing is, uh, yeah, it's not, you're not, you don't know what you're doing. And I, think i can help who you was that? And, who was that what was his name uh yeah it's the coach i have now he's called jens peterson back oh jens peterson uh, yes yes i, I raced yeah. jens <laughs> yeah exactly yes, yes. So, a long long time ago but yes he, in the he 90s yeah. won, one iron man copenhagen one year yeah, where yeah, yeah. i was spectating and and he's been on hawaii two times himself uh, and mm-hmm. I, so i started working with him and he started making all my programs and taking care of me like I was his uh, his own child. That's awesome. So, and from that day, I just started progressing uh, like immensely. It was almost from one day to another that getting in the right training load and teaching me how to recover and how to do things and the importance of sleep and all those mm. very basic things that 
just... What year was that? How long ago was that? It was in 2018 I started working with him. Wow. And then so you basically had 18 months with him before COVID years. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of those months because I started working with him in the spring of 18 and we had signed me up for my first pro event, which was supposed to be on Mallorca mm -hmm. in the October 2018. But then uh, the ride I did before I was going to pack all my, like pack down my bag uh, in the bike, uh, yeah, baggage uh, thing. I was hit by a car uh, and crashed pretty bad and broke my left shoulder and left shoulder blade and then the right arm also. And it was some quite uh, complicated, especially the collarbone was a quite complicated fracture. So I had to get two surgeries where I wouldn't, they uh, put in a metal plate so I couldn't lift my arm for half a year. Wow. Uh, which the base, yeah, that obviously pre prevented me from by like running, oh, swimming, sorry, uh, in yeah, half a year. But then I just decided. So <laughs> it's in that period, I think I really, my bike level started rising because I started sitting on Swift for 130 days in a row because that was, <laughs> that was the only, only thing I could do. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. so I, my debut after I got my coach was delayed quite a bit. So when was that? When was that debut? Because that, that almost takes you right up to COVID, doesn't it? Yeah, especially because then once I got the metal thing out of my collarbone, I was in a training camp and I crashed again, in, uh, and <laughs> which uh, also unfortunately, yeah, I couldn't walk because some things happened with my, like a nerve in my left leg. So mm. I wasn't able to run then for again almost half a year which sidelined me until i finally had my debut in 2019 <laughs> wow that's quite a rocky start to yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so you've lost your upper body for half a year and then your lower body for half a year but yeah. in doing so did that allow you to well, one, it, it seems like it allowed you to develop your bike for, for 130 <laughs> days straight on yeah. Zwift, which is hilarious. And then when you were taken out, was that, okay, now I can do six months of solid swim work. Is that how it worked? Yeah, or? basically that was how it worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're an idiot savant. Have you heard that yeah. expression? It's like yeah. things just happen for the right way without even really knowing yeah, how. It was a really tough period for me because I had, like I was telling people around me that I was going to become a professional triathlete mm -hmm. and that I had some quite good numbers from training, but I had never done a pro event before. <laughs> and here I was saying that I was about to become professional. And yeah, so it was, that was really, really difficult for me. Well, mate, I, I think, you know, if we, we look at the back at this last 48 minutes of conversation and the tremendous high that you've just had this past week, with those lows not that long ago, you know, and if there's anything people want to take away from this conversation is hang in there even when times are tough. I mean, mentally, how was that for you during those times? I mean, you've got the yeah. expectation from others, the expectation on yourself that you're a professional athlete, mm. but you're not able to even do a race. Exactly. That's also because in Denmark, it's we have a, a like sort of unwritten uh, law that says that you shouldn't believe you are anything if you haven't 
Like you shouldn't believe you are better than anyone and you definitely shouldn't believe you are more than anyone. So, And that's quite in contrast to how you have to think if you are a professional athlete. If you don't believe in yourself, mm -hmm. then you will never get anywhere. 100%. And it's like when I say still, when I say in Denmark that I'm a professional triathlete, people say, yeah, that's fine. But what are you doing besides that? So it's always, mm. it, it's always coming down to what, Do you have an education? What are you working with? So it's very hard for people in Denmark to believe that actually a professional triathlete is something you can live off. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it took a while. I mean, in Australia, we didn't have it too bad in the late 80s, early 90s. We kind of, Australians got their head around the world mm. of triathlon reasonably early and being a professional athlete in any sport was always adopted pretty early. That was one thing that I think as Australians, we had a, a gift um, the US was very different. I remember coming over here yeah, and, exactly. and it was still, what are you doing to make money and how do you make money from that? And people, I was like, what? <laughs> I don't have to explain yeah. myself to you. Um, <laughs> and so it was a different kind of a approach. You, you mentioned your, your team with the ends. Uh, who else is on that team? You, you've got a management team, yeah. your, your sponsors. It's one of the things I still like. It's one of the, it, you could say it's developing all the time because I'm so new to the sport, but basically the main part of people I'm, that I'm surrounding with is, uh, of course, Jens. And then I have family is still a huge part of, <laughs> <laughs> they are, I'm still living at home. So they are also supporting me very well. And, and then I have, uh, as we mentioned earlier, some sponsors that are helping me, Scott Bikes, Head Wheels, Fusion, Apparel, Sailfish, Wetsuits, Ceramic Speed, and uh, yeah. Well, mate, hopefully after this podcast, we get you a bit more support. <laughs> um, the sponsors are going to be, I think, clambering over you as we approach up to Kona, Ironman World Champs. And, uh, you know, there's a whole conversation around the Norwegians and Jan Fredino. And, mm. uh, and it's like all of a sudden we have a new person that's thrown into that whole mix. Um, and uh, I think you've just thrust yourself into that world. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to have a few more conversations over these next couple of months. And I, <laughs> I really do hope that people that are listening to this will, 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 will support you and uh, will back you. And I think it'll be well, money well spent is what I'm going to say. Um, I want to, let's, let's quickly, um, you mentioned altitude training earlier and, whatever you're willing to share, because I know, you know, some of these things you want to keep to yourself, but curious as to uh, the methodology of the altitude tent and how you guys approach that. The good thing is that after I've started uh, getting some results in, I'm now in uh, very good contact with some experts from uh, the Danish uh, team Denmark, we call them, where they have physiologists and stuff like that. So they've been helping me and uh, Like the protocol we did was four weeks, uh, obviously in an altitude tent, and it was two hours straight uh, during the day that you have to have. And then during the night, you need to be there for at least 10 hours straight. So it's a quite uh, normally you don't sleep 10 hours. So sometimes we had to go in there uh, a little bit beforehand and we had some... Uh, What you want to see is an increase in uh, hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. I think it's called in English also. Mm -hmm. And so we had some blood tests before and after. And unfortunately, uh, I didn't get, I only had one 0.5% increase in that. <laughs> so it was, uh, and uh, 
it was actually since it was my first time i think it was it was all right until denmark decided to suddenly put on uh, 30 degrees temperatures mm. outside mm. more variables yeah if you yeah. can imagine uh, if it's 30 degree outside and you place a tent inside uh, oh, and in denmark you don't have air conditioning mm. So then inside that tent and the sun is shining, it, it gets even hotter. <laughs> so actually, like uh, I was supposed to leave the tent uh, Monday before Roth and I had to cut a few days before, uh, like cut the experiment a little short because I had been sleeping so bad. Yeah. And I was basically Sunday before Roth, I was out for an easy run and I couldn't almost couldn't in my, I was almost walking because I was so tired from not sleeping. So I think it's something you have to be quite careful with. And especially now that I didn't get any increase. My girlfriend, who I was sleeping with in the tent also, and she's also doing triathlon, she had a quite significant <laughs> increase. So from now on, she will be in the tent and I sleep outside. So, That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah. But so it's it's, a good I think you have... Mm. I think you have to be careful with the oh definitely especially when it's very hot outside and you don't have uh, control on the <laughs> well it just adds a, it adds another stressor right i mean at the end yeah, of the day exactly. what you're doing as an athlete and 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 training is you're stressing your body whether that's through physical training or you know and, and the idea of adding another stress that can be heat humidity or altitude mm. when you add those stresses the body's going to get more physically tired. Ideally, your body makes up for the difference. That's the whole point. You stress it during sleep. Yeah. And, you know, I know for Laura and I, we did, we used the altitude tent off and on from 2003 for about 10 years. And um, by the time we were living in Boulder, Colorado, which is at, you know, close to yeah, 6,000 feet, yeah. what is that, 1,750 meters, I think. And mm. So I do a lot of my training there, but then when I really wanted to get ready for championship races in sort of September, October, I'd actually jump into the tent in July, August, even though I was uh. racing some big races then and then just slowly increase it. And I would get to the point I'd be in the tent every night and I'd be sleeping at 12,000 feet um, or what is it, you know, 3,000 meters. Yeah, I think our height was also, we built it up slowly towards three and a half thousand meters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, you, but like you and, and your missus, you know, Laura, it really wiped her out. And so <laughs> the, the, the benefits of it for Laura weren't, she would do a couple of nights in and then a couple of nights out. And, and whereas I'd yeah. be sort of every night in, um, but I slept for so long, a bit like you, I was in there, I'd go to bed at eight and wake up at <laughs> you know, like six yeah. the next morning, 10 hour sleeps. And, and it wasn't great sleep. You know, you're doing all the monitoring and everything. It probably wasn't the greatest sleep, but I had to be in there a long time. Um, mm. Very tricky to figure out. And everybody, anybody thinking about trying it, do work with a physiologist and, and uh, do monitor very closely because it can really leave you in a hole if you don't do it right. Um, yeah, definitely. I have I'm one just... more story I got to share with you <laughs> talking about the heat. We were down in Noosa, Australia and we didn't have air. We had a little portable air conditioning unit and it was mega hot. We were in a really hot house and we did the stupid thing of putting the air conditioner inside the tent 
and it yeah. sucked all the walls in almost. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, we actually also try uh, like we couldn't get any air conditioning, but we uh, had the salt. We had to place a fan inside, and we were really desperate to try try all sorts of <laughs> things to cool it down. Quick mini break to remind you to go check out any question. You can go download it on iOS or Android. That's any question, one word, and go ask the world's experts questions and listen to their answers that are already there. You can listen to people in the world of swim, bike, run, triathlon and endurance sports, strength trainers, musculoskeletal and nutritionalists, other health experts, and we even have some of the world's greatest scholars out of MIT and Harvard ready to listen to your questions and answer them, and they've already answered quite a lot. So go check it out any question well mate this has been awesome hey how, how do you feel about finishing with some rapid fire questions you got any fast twitch fiber left in your body uh let's see <laughs> <laughs> let's see if i can manage <laughs> all right let's, let's finish up with some fast rapid fire here we go best and worst subjects at school i like physics and i didn't like um well in denmark it's called uh, religion so it's mm. Yeah, yeah, and history also. Okay. Uh, my fa- favorite. <laughs> yeah, physics, you've got an engineering mind. Um, all right. What are you currently reading or watching on Netflix, one or the other? Uh, I'm actually not either. <laughs> not doing either. <laughs> not doing either. I try not to watch too many, many yeah. series on Netflix because I um, think I will just binge. Get too soaked up in yeah. them. So I get it. I get it. All right. First car you owned? Uh, I've never owned a car. So, uh, <laughs> this is the best. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, All right. You need to get a car sponsor. Somebody help him out. Yeah, we're looking for it. All right. Uh, two most used apps on your phone? Uh, Training Peaks and Messenger, I think. Cool. What time of day are you most productive? I think in the, in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this one will be interesting. First job? Uh, professional. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. All right. Who would you want to play a movie of your life? Oh, myself. Nice. You see yourself as an actor. <laughs> All right. Uh, which decade of music is best? Uh, That's an important one. Yeah, but um, actually I like some uh, more... Like 80s or 90s. Oh, well but, done. Yeah. Well done. I like, so, I, I'm not not a very big fan of all of the like not modern stuff. No, me either. Unless it's a remix of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It can be quite good. Yeah. yeah. Where is somewhere in the world that you haven't been that you'd like to go? Oh, I would love to go to Kona. Mm-hmm. And then also I think Australia would be pretty special. So you haven't been, you haven't seen Kona yet? You're going to go no, race? No, I've race never it. seen Kona. All right. Then you're going to go there and just race it. Um, <laughs> very cool. I'll leave you one more here and then greatest movie of all time. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a boring person no, outside of trying to. That is I'm not boring. Not, not, I don't watch a lot of movies actually. So. <laughs> no, that's right. You've got plenty of time for it. You've you yeah. got plenty of time. All right, mate. Well, so what's the future look for, like for you now? You've, um, you're have you on the back of Roth. You, you, you're 
recovering? Yeah, I'm trying to get uh, desperately trying to get ready for PTO Edmonton. Okay, all right, because that's only in a couple of weeks then. And, yeah, um, two and a half weeks, yeah, I think. So yeah, yeah it's not uh, exactly ideal, and it's much shorter than uh, <laughs> full distance. So yeah, but other other than that, then I think uh, suddenly now I'm in quite a good position to make it to the Collins Cup team. Oh yeah. Which is a format I think uh, that is pretty good for me since it's basically just a time trial uh, all the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll also do uh, PTO in Dallas on the way to Hawaii. And then Hawaii is going to be the, like, that's the main focus from for this year from yeah. now on. So, how, how, how far before Hawaii will you go in? Are you guys planning? Uh, yeah, so uh, the PTO event is uh, three weeks before, mm -hmm. so I'm planning to go directly from that and then to Hawaii. Oh, that'll work pretty well, I think you'll find. Yeah, Dal Dallas is kind of it's it, that'll be hot and humid. That's tough conditions. Yeah, it's um, like it's it also breaks the trip into two instead yeah. of going like a, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know how big the time the fourteen hour, twelve hours or yeah, something it's like, like that. The worst. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, mate, it, this is a real thrill for me to have you sit and chat with me, buddy. No, it was a pleasure. So. Yeah, and thanks for sharing your journey. I'm really excited about your future. Um, no more accidents, please. Um, <laughs> no. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, you, you've ticked a bucket list race for most professional athletes. Uh, to be able to have that one in your belt already is, is pretty significant. So please enjoy it and everything that goes with it. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again in person at some point. I don't know when that'll yeah, be, definitely. but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But again, mate, thanks for coming on. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It yeah. was uh, yeah, it was a true pleasure. Well, you're more than welcome. And everybody listening, um, you can go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media to find show notes, timestamps, coupon links and all of that. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And thanks again, Magnus. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.